Please be seated. Since my opportunity is to look at you as a group and say this, I'll take it now. Good evening, brothers and sisters in Christ. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book or letter to Philemon. That's right before Hebrews, right after Titus. And if you're using a Bible provided there in front of you, it's on page 829. The letter of Paul to Philemon. And as you're arriving there, let's open with a question. What comes to mind when you hear the word or think of the concept of fellowship? Do you think of that sweet time that we share with one another after worship on the Lord's Day? Perhaps with a cup of coffee? Or maybe you're thinking, it's not quite fellowship unless there's food. And so you think of the meals we share with one another. Or maybe your mind turns to those smaller, more intimate, middle-of-the-week gatherings where we gather with one another in prayer and Bible study. And as you may know, this concept or this word, fellowship, is all throughout the New Testament. It's a thoroughly Christian idea. It comes from a Greek word, which actually you probably most of you have heard. It's called koinonia. And before we get too far, if you look down there in Philemon verse 6, koinonia is this word that's translated sharing, that the sharing of your faith. This word can be translated sharing or communion or how I'm going to refer to it this evening as fellowship. Now, there are a wide range of usage of this word, fellowship, throughout the New Testament. Some examples uh, from the tangible all the way to the mysterious. For example, Acts chapter 2, the disciples continue in doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread. Or you might remember Galatians 2, the Jewish Christian leaders extended the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says, Do not be yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship does light have with darkness? And in his first letter to the Corinthians, perhaps the most mysterious or profound usage you'll remember, Paul says, By God, Christians are called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we look at the first few verses here in Paul's letter to Philemon, we're going to get some more definition. Uh, we're going to round out our understanding of this concept. And as we go, I want to put our thoughts into two categories. I want to think of what produces fellowship or what or where fellowship comes from. And then also I want to think of what fellowship produces or where does fellowship go. If you want to take a look there with me in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and our fellow laborer, to the beloved Apphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see a few things here about what produces fellowship. 
They're maybe a little bit hidden, but look there. Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. There's a, there's a common work. There's a common mission here. To the beloved Apphia, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, there's a common battle. And if you skip to the end, in verse 23, Paul ends his, uh, ends his letter with the greeting, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, meaning there's perhaps a common persecution. And then also Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers, there's the common work again. And then, of course, as Paul frequently does, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So we have a common mission, a common battle, a common persecution. And this is just another one of many ways to point at this doctrine that Christians are in Christ. We have union with Christ. And our union with Christ puts us in union with one another. Now we don't want to miss this as Paul moves from verse 3 to verse 4. In the first three verses, Paul is using the plural. There's the church in your house, everybody. And then in verse 4, Paul turns the letter specifically to Philemon. This is a very intimate letter. This is a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. When he says, I thank my God making mention of you, Philemon, singular, always in my prayers. So that's a little bit about what produces fellowship, or where fellowship comes from. And then as we get to verse 4, we're going to start to see a little of this, what fellowship produces, or where fellowship goes. Look there in verse 4, Paul says, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward us, all the saints. And we have to slow down here. This is the bottom. This is the base. This is the foundation of what Paul's going to ask of Philemon. He says, or he prays, that the sharing of your faith, Philemon, may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. We're going to park here for just a moment. This New King James Version, if you all are following along here, it's actually not my favorite way of reading this passage. And it's not a, a textual issue. There's no difference in the manuscripts if you're concerned about that. I just think I would prefer a different translation work, which I'll read here in a moment. But here's what's, what's happening. The sharing of your faith, or the fellowship of your faith, or faith's fellowship, Paul wants that to take effect. He's praying, Lord, make Philemon's fellowship, the fellowship of his faith, make it effective. How? Through the realization, through the acknowledgement of what? Of every good thing in you. Why? In Christ. Toward Christ. Unto Christ. Again, in other words, when the Lord brings us to new life in Christ, along with repentance and faith, He gives us the acknowledgement, 
the understanding that every good thing is meant to be shared with fellow saints, is meant to be used for fellowship. And this is why I prefer the NAS Bible's uh, translation. Again, it's just a, it's a translation choice. Let me read Philemon 6 to you from the NAS. Paul prays that the fellowship of Philemon's faith becomes effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Common mission, common battle, common persecution, union with Christ, union in Christ, union with one another has a supernatural end, a uniquely Christian end, fellowship. So let's look back at, at the beginning here and we see how this works itself out a little bit. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. This fellowship is a bond, a family-type bond, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Have you, ever, have you ever worked on something that was obviously bigger than yourself? And the people who you work on this thing with, they become close to you, right? When, when a group of people work on something profound, something big, their co-laboring brings them into a fellowship that is unique. Similarly, fellow soldier. There are a thousand movies. There are a thousand stories. You probably know folks who share a special, close union with people that they fought with, whether it's fought, fought a war or fought for some cause, fighting together brings us into fellowship. And then we, we see this, we see this working in itself out. Uh, it produces, fellowship produces gratitude towards the Lord, verse 4. Verse 5, it produces love, uh, it produces refreshment of heart. Maybe I skipped, I did, I skipped ahead. Down in, in verse 7. For we have great joy, it causes joy and consolation. Hearing of this fellowship refreshes the hearts of saints. So again, with our faith, the Lord brings us to acknowledge or to understand or to realize that everything has been given to us Every good thing has been given to us to fellowship. This, this fellowship creates a bond that is stronger, it's supernatural, it's uniquely Christian. As we turn to verse 8, we see one more thing that fellowship produces. This fellowship or changes a legitimate command, or what is fitting, into an appeal out of brotherly love. Look there in verse 8. Paul says, Therefore, I, I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. This is a legitimate command. This could be a matter of law, but because of our fellowship, because of our bond in Christ, verse 9, 
Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Let's continue there. Verse 10, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And then here's the appeal, as, as clear as it can be, verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Philemon was a presumably wealthy man from the area of Colossae. At some point in Paul's ministry in Ephesus, most scholars think is when uh, the Lord saved Philemon. And at some point, one of Philemon's slaves, Onesimus, ran away. Now, we don't really know what kind of master-slave relationship existed between Philemon and Onesimus. We don't know if Onesimus was a victim of man-stealing. We don't know if this was a brutal relationship. We don't know how it compares or does not compare to our own experience, our own understanding of slavery in America. We just don't know. I do think it is necessary, though, to contemplate this for a moment. Because knowing Paul, and Paul knowing Philemon, and Paul knowing Onesimus... It does make sense that the details that we wish we could know are left out of Paul's letter, right? He, he wouldn't have to restate those because he's talking to the people who know about this relationship. And the scholarship, of course, as you might expect, is mixed. Um, generally speaking, Roman Empire slavery in the first, the few centuries before Christ was more barbaric, more like the slaves were led in for the gladiatorial games, that sort of thing. Stealing men as a fruit of war or just you know, traveling around the world and taking people into slavery. There is some argument to be made that in the first century, Roman slavery was turning a little bit more um, normally to more of an indentured servitude. But again, these details, we just don't know. But the reason that it's important to think about it is because... At a real moment, in real history, the real person of Onesimus was standing at the door of his former master, Philemon. And as we remember from a few weeks ago in our study of Colossians, Onesimus had been saved through the ministry of Paul in Rome. So when he ran away, somehow he ended up in Rome. The Lord saved him under Paul's preaching in Rome. And he stayed there to serve Paul. And then later on, with Tychicus, Onesimus was carrying back to Philemon's region the letter to the Colossians, 
probably the letter to Ephesians, and this letter, a personal one, to his former master. So there's a real moment in time where Onesimus is standing at Philemon's door with this letter, and we don't actually know if Onesimus knew the contents of this letter or not, but he's standing at the door, and the one whom he ran away from is about to open. And most likely, no matter what kind of slavery this was, Philemon had every authority and just cause to execute Onesimus, if nothing else, to get exactly what Onesimus owed him in some sort of punishment or reparation. And here's a good point where we have to stop and think. We don't know what Onesimus, the runaway slave, owed his master. But I'm looking at a room full of runaway slaves, right? We had the most benevolent master who not only created us and gave us life and breath and being, but to whom we owed everything. And in our sin, we ran away. And by the Lord's doing, like that piece of paper in Onesimus' hand, he calls us back to our master with the appeal of another. The appeal to receive the runaway slave as the Savior, as the one who is willing to repay. Now, of course, you keep going, the analogy fails, so we'll stop there. But let's, let's get back on track here. Paul's appeal to Philemon for Onesimus is based on this kind of profound fellowship. The fellowship is why Paul changes what he could command, what is fitting, to a brotherly appeal. Paul wants Philemon to exercise the same fellowship in how he handles Onesimus' return as he would handle Paul's arrival. Right? Look there again in verse 14. He says, without your consent, I wanted, you to, I wanted to do nothing. He's appealing not by compulsion, but voluntarily. So here's how it goes. Hey, Philemon, says Paul, you and I... We're in the same family, brother. But Onesimus and I are the same family, too. We are in the same family bond. And then again in verse 17, if you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. We have the same bond of partnership, Philemon, between you and me. Count my partnership with Onesimus as the same bond. And again in verse 22, he says, Also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Hey, Philemon, if I was going to show up, I know you'd prepare a room for me. When Onesimus shows up, prepare a room for him. We are in the same union. Because of our union to Christ, we are in union with one another. Treat Onesimus as the same way as you would treat me. Another thing we don't want to miss here is that Paul's not ignoring justice, but he appeals 
to Philemon to make his decision on the basis of fellowship instead of justice. And this is really interesting. Look there again in verse 18. This is actually the verse that makes some scholars think that when Onesimus ran away, perhaps he stole a few things on the way out the door, and so he could uh, make his way to Rome. Again, something we can only speculate on. Look there in verse 18. Paul says, If Onesimus has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand, I will repay. This is the interesting part. Look there in verse 13. He says, Onesimus was the one I wished to keep with me. And then he says, that on your behalf, Philemon, he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. Paul's saying, I'm willing to work the justice of it out. If, you're, if you want to decide on justice, let me pay the tab. You can have your justice, Philemon. Interestingly enough, Philemon, when Onesimus was serving me in Rome, I actually credited that to your account. Because he's your slave, I was crediting his ministry on your account. And then look back at the back half of 19. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own life besides. I think this is actually more than what's going on in verse 13. I think this is more than Paul saying, hey, when Onesimus was ministering to me, I'm crediting that to your account. And so it makes sense that if you're going to do this on justice, Philemon, you should call it good. There shouldn't actually be anything more to repay. But I think he's going a step further. And you can probably all sense it, right? Paul, the preacher of the gospel, by whom the Lord saved Philemon, bringing him to new life, Hey, Philemon, if we're going to do this on the basis of justice, you owe me everything. So if you're going to do it on justice, it should be a quick decision. But it's not supposed to be on justice. I could command you to do it, and the justice would work itself out. But I'm asking you to do it because of our fellowship because of this union with Christ, because of our union with Christ, I'm asking you rather, I'm appealing to you rather on the basis of this fellowship. So just like fellowship changed that command into a brotherly appeal, Paul wants the fellowship to change the basis of Philemon's decision from justice to love. Fellowship changes the basis of a decision like this from justice to love. This is a completely different economy. Look there again in verse 19. I'm writing on my own hand. I will pay. Not to mention that you owe me even your life besides. Hey, Philemon. We could do this on justice, and I, we could figure out how to put everything back to where it belongs. You get what is rightfully owed to you. Onesimus gets some sort of punishment or may, has to make some repayment. But I don't want you to do it that way. I want you to do it on the basis of fellowship. 
And this is where the economy changes. Look there in 16. If Philemon receives Onesimus back, he loses whatever work Philemon was going to do as his slave. But what he gets is more than a slave. He gets a brother. And not just a brother in the flesh. A brother in the flesh and in the Lord. Look at the end of verse 15. A brother in flesh and in the Lord forever. Fellowship changes the economy of how brothers and sisters in Christ operate and relate to one another. Do you see it? Do you see how profound this is? The righteous life and the sacrificial death, the Christ that reconciles us to our creator and master by satisfying the justice we owed, this is the same Christ that by faith brings us to understand our common battle, our common persecution, our common commission, to use every good thing that Christ has given us to fellowship. This bond changes the way we relate, we relate to one another. This bond of fellowship changes everything. And you're probably sensing it. But if you haven't already, don't miss how countercultural this would have been to Philemon. Now, also don't miss, Paul, Paul's laying it on pretty thick, right? I, I didn't actually point it out, but let me go back to it. He's saying, I want to appeal to you as a brother, a loving brother. Brother, I'm Paul, the old guy, you know, the one in chains in Rome because of our shared concern for the gospel. I mean, he's laying it on thick. Not to mention, you owe me your life. He's, he's not going easy. And also remember that this letter was going to be read by more than just Philemon. He greets the church as a whole in Philemon's house at the beginning. So everyone is watching whether, Paul, uh, whether Philemon is actually going to do what Paul appealed to him or not. Right? But the world around Philemon is, is going to, they're not going to get it. The, Philemon's society would have expected Philemon to somehow, some way, whether punishment or reparation or, or whatever, to get back what Onesimus had stolen, whether in time and duty or he carried some stuff off with him. Philemon's world would have expected Philemon to get justice. And you might be wondering if the same sort of thing would happen. Would it be as countercultural a situation like this today? And maybe you're thinking, yeah, it's hard to imagine a kind of slavery that the culture, the society around us wouldn't say that ought to be eradicated immediately, you know, for good and bad reason. You know, it seems like our society is likely to have no concern for Philemon's loss. Because it's slavery, it should just go away, right? So there's a difference there. And, and we want to remember that nowhere in this letter 
does Paul ever insinuate or explicitly accuse Philemon of any wrongdoing? Right? That's, that's not part of this equation at all. And so, though our society's view of slavery might be not even close to Philemon's society view of slavery, what I want to get to here is that it is not the view of slavery that makes this decision countercultural in Philemon's day, and it is not that view of slavery that would make a similar decision in our day countercultural. The unbelievers around Philemon don't know Christ. The unbelievers around us don't know Christ. The unbelievers in both situations do not know the person and work that satisfies the justice between God and man, and they don't know the person and the work of Christ that creates fellowship among believers. And since the world is left to satisfy justice on its own, justice is the only way that the world can relate with one another. There's, there's no such thing as sharing or giving without creating a debt. There's no such thing as forgiveness until after the reparations are made. Think about this. This is... It kind of blew my mind when I stumbled upon this thought. There's no such thing as fulfilling the law by love if you're going to keep justice in the middle of it. We fulfill... The two great commandments, I'm probably skipping ahead of myself here. We fulfill the two great commandments that cover the whole law and the prophets. And those two are love God and love neighbor. And this is, this is mind belonging to the world. It just doesn't work this way because the world can only relate to one another in justice. Our Lord has satisfied the justice, and now we are free to operate in a, a different economy. The world stuck with justice, they're stuck in a world run by a false god who's got a finite amount of stuff, and every gift creates a debt, every forgiveness requires a prior rep reparation. It's a zero-sum game. If somebody wins, that means somebody lo loses. If you add this rightful idea that everyone is created equal and that we all deserve the same, what happens with that justice stuck in the middle is every disparity becomes an injustice, every offense requires a reparation, and you see where the world has gone with that sort of thing. Right? Uh, the good news, as you might be hoping we were going to get to soon, is that we know the real Lord. We know the living God who created everything out of nothing. We know the living God who brings life from non-life. We know the living God who can bring new life out of death. The one who took it upon himself to satisfy the justice that he requires and to bring us into fellowship with him and to bring us into fellowship with one another for our battle against sin and death, for our commission to go to the world and make disciples. And this fellowship makes it fitting 
to share, to give out of love, not expecting any repayment. This fellowship gives us the freedom to forgive and leave justice to the Lord. So we put ourselves in Onesimus' shoes for a moment there earlier, but I think the Lord's appeal to us now, the Lord's appeal to us in this letter, is more like how we would think about putting ourselves in Philemon's shoes. Every good thing has been given to us by Christ so that we can share, we can fellowship with it. What may be, what may appear to be a loss when we give or forgive or reconcile without expectation of repayment is not a loss. It is meant for that eternal gain. And so on the basis of this fellowship, this common mission, this common battle, this common persecution, well, let me just ask you this. Which of the every good things, every good thing that the Lord had given Philemon, which of those things was Paul asking him to share? Which one of those things was Paul asking Philemon to use for the sake of fellowship? Which one of those things was he asking <coughs> to... Oh, I misspoke. I'm not going to give you the answer, so you don't have to shout it out, I guess. Paul's asking Philemon to trade what is rightfully his in that work of Philemon, uh, work of Onesimus, that, that material wealth, Paul's asking, he's appealing to Philemon, trade that material wealth for that eternal bond, remember? Use your freedom to forgive and that material wealth to turn that temporary earthly slave into an, an eternal brother in Christ. This fellowship, Philemon, has brought you to where you have the freedom to forgive and you don't have to count it as a loss. So, we're coming to the end here. Brothers, sisters, beloved, though it is fitting to command you to share, it is a law that we ought to give and forgive. Rather, I appeal to you on the basis of fellowship. Let us use every gift towards the sake of Christ in fellowship. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have given us life and breath and being and new life and every good thing in Christ. Lord, stir our hearts to share these gifts on the basis of fellowship, out of love, in our battle against sin and death, and toward our goal of making disciples of all the nations. Strengthen our family bonds, strengthen our bonds as co-laborers, strengthen our bonds as co-warriors.
for Christ's sake and in his name.